How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's take a few moments, have silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in right relationship with the Lord and ready to study the word. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we continue to pray for our nation as we have observed this nation on a trajectory away from truth, away from your word, away from any concept of absolute truth or righteousness. We know that it continues to uh, uh, deteriorate and devolve into uh, pure paganism. Father, this it will destroy all prosperity. It will destroy all freedom, as it always has throughout history. There can never be freedom unless there is freedom within a framework of of absolute truth. Father, we pray that you might continue to raise up men and women to lead this nation who have the courage, the fortitude, the wherewithal to be able to uh, stand in the gap, to influence policy, to uh, talk uh, intelligently about the issues, and to convince people of the truth. And we pray that you would continue to raise up leaders who can do that. We pray that you would continue to restrain the evil that seeks to take over this nation and the policies that they wish to inflict upon this nation that ultimately will destroy uh, any freedom that we have. And uh, we, those who have a historical perspective see the, such similarities between what is taking place here and what has taken place in numerous other civilizations that are on the decline. Father, we know the only hope is grace. The only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. The only hope is biblical truth. And so we pray that you might give us the courage, the wisdom, the uh, grace orientation, the graciousness, the kindness to communicate the truth in love and in kindness to those who are in desperate need to understand that their sins are forgiven and that eternal life is a free gift and it is not a judgmental gospel but a gospel of grace and a gospel of forgiveness. Now, Father, as we study today, this evening, especially related to your sovereignty, it is such a comfort at a time when we see history deteriorate before our eyes that we know that you are still in control and that even though this may may have surprised us, shocked us, may cause us to uh, want to despair, nevertheless, we know that your will and your plan will be victorious uh, in the end, and it is our job, our privilege to serve you no matter what the circumstances may be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, before we get started, I want us to turn in, in to a psalm. I want to turn to Psalm 135. Psalm 135. What's interesting as we come to the end of the psalms, is that there are a series of psalms that begin with uh, Psalm 120. Of course, many of you are familiar with Psalm 19, which is the longest chapter in the Bible, the longest of the psalms. It's uh, 176 verses. 
but starting in Psalm 120 and extending through uh, Psalm, I believe it's around Psalm 135, 134, so uh, 15 Psalms, you will see in the superscript just above the first verse, which is actually part of the original text, that they're they're called the Songs of Ascent. Now, do you have any idea what that means? A song of ascent. What are you ascending? What is being ascended? What are you going up? You're going up the Temple Mount to worship and to worship at the Temple. So these would have been hymns that would have been sung by uh, the Temple choirs, would have been sung by people as they walked to the Temple uh, to worship God. And so there is a, a, a an, el- an sort of an extra added element in these Psalms where they're focused upon uh, upon the Lord and upon uh, his greatness and upon what he has provided for Israel and how he has delivered Israel out of the most uh, oppressive of circumstances. Now, when we come to Psalm 135, Psalm 135 is a psalm that reflects our topic. And our topic that we see in in Second Samuel, First Samuel chapter 2, verses 4 and following, is this emphasis on God's sovereignty which is a genuine comfort in times of, of, uh, uh, of difficulty in life because we know that God is still in control. It is not the Calvinistic uh, doctrine, which is often nothing more than a veiled doctrine of fatalism. Uh, it is a doctrine that says that God rules even when human volition seems to be out of control and chaos seems to have entered into the scene. Uh, no chaos that man can create can create is too great for the grace of God and too great for the plan of God so that his plan is not dependent upon uh, human volition. He can carry out his plan. He has built enough flexibility into history and his sovereignty and his omnipotence is so great that no matter how out of control things may appear to us, they're never out of God's control. And even when human beings make the most outrageous decisions, whether they're personal decisions, decisions, and we all know people who seem to just uh, mess up their lives by the numbers, and it gets worse and worse and worse, and they make some of the most outrageous and most horrible decisions. And then one day they wake up, and they're like the prodigal son, and they find themselves in the pigsty eating garbage. And they've turned their life into garbage, and they still have a, a desire. They, 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 they become so immersed in the garbage of the pigsty that they actually think they're at a five-star restaurant. And this is what happens with sin, is it so clouds the judgment, and it so destroys the judgment, so attacks our judgment, because at the core of the sin nature is this bent that we keep reading about and studying about that's described in Romans one eighteen and following, that that man in negative volition seeks to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
so that he uses that, that phrase there in unrighteousness is an instrumental in the Greek and indicate he's suppressing the truth by means of unrighteousness. So the means that he's using is a wrong means. It's, it, it's wrong. Now let's plug that into something we've all heard and we've all studied many, many times. And that is that for something to be right, it has to be a right thing, a right objective done in a right way, right? It's a lot of rights. I'm not talking about left. We're talking about right. So a right thing has to be done in the right way. Well, a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. Two wrongs don't make anything right. So a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. A wrong thing done in a wrong way is wrong. And so what they're doing is they may have right ends. They may have right goals, but they're using wrong means to achieve them. They may also have wrong goals. So in the suppression of truth operates on two things. They're trying to deny truth, so their ultimate goal is going to be wrong. But even within that framework of that which is wrong, uh, they are. Uh, there may be some relatively moral things and right things that are are, are part of their uh, objective. Uh, just speaking generally, and so, but their suppression mechanism is always that which utilizes unrighteousness in order to achieve uh, achieve its ends. But God is still in control. So no matter how unrighteous a person becomes, no matter how much they reverse their thinking so that they're saying that right is wrong and wrong is right, which is often what God indicts the both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel is for, is that when we reject God and reject his value system, then what happens is we see a reversal of polarity in our conscience, and we begin to uh, think that right is wrong and wrong is right. And this has a, a I, I think a lot of decisions we make impact the biochemical nature of our, of our makeup. And it impacts the way our brains function and our brains operate. A lot of things do, but that doesn't mean it's an ir- that there's no recovery. We can, uh, we, we're learning more and more about sugar and the toxic effects that sugar can have on the brain and the addictive nature of sugar on the brain. But even when uh, you are addicted to sugar, and that addiction has been uh, demonstrated pretty much through a lot of studies in the last 20 years, you can break it. It, it, it can be almost as bad as trying to get off of heroin and, and uh, cr- uh, cocaine. In fact, there have been studies where uh, in, in laboratories they've, they've gotten uh, mice addicted to cocaine, they've gotten mice addicted to sugar, and then they take them off of it for two or three days so that they're just desperate to get it. Then they introduce them to a cage where on one end of the cage is sugar, the other end of the cage is cocaine, and 90% of the uh, rats go for the sugar. So it's very addictive, but that doesn't mean you can't break it. I mean, I, many of us have broken that sugar habit. Some of us have broken it many times. Some of us will break it many, many more times, but you can break it. You just have to stay away from the nasty stuff. And uh, the same thing is true with other, uh, other patterns, and especially sinful patterns. They can have this sort of physiological impact on our brain, but that doesn't mean we can't recover. And so we can end up like the prodigal son, and we're sitting in the middle of the pigsty, and we're eating pig food, 
and we're thinking we're we're at a five star restaurant, and this is the greatest food that there ever is, and that's what happens. We then live in it can live in a culture where it's we're surrounded by by people like that, and so it's very difficult to communicate with people like that. We find ourselves in that kind of a culture today, where a lot of people just have have lost their moral compass. Uh, are, and they're trying to find some sort of standard, but when you've lost any sense of absolutes, then it's difficult to recover unless you dig down and really reverse yourself in what the Bible calls repentance, which means to change your mind, change your thinking. This is what in the Old Testament is often indicated by the word shuv, which means to turn and turn back to God, which is constantly what he was telling uh, the Israelites in the Old Testament to do. And so when we're living in the midst of, of adversity, you're living in the midst of tribulation, you're living in the midst of persecution, you're living in the midst of a culture where everybody is calling wrong right, and because you're saying, no, right is different, right is over here, then you get labeled as the enemy. And this is unfortunately what's been happening in recent years is more and more voices are raised against Christians. And, and with this ruling this last Friday, things have really gotten out of control. There are just some vitriolic things that are being said about Christians, and that just exacerbates itself. And, and people who are hostile to Christianity because uh, Christianity has a, has a code of ethics that says that certain kinds of behavior is wrong, that they can't handle that. And part of that is this dynamic of the fact that they're suppressing truth in unrighteousness. And so anybody who comes along and calls them to account to a, to a biblical standard, then they're going to overreact because of this, this dynamic of, of, of truth suppression, that all of a sudden once we call people to a moral standard, and the Bible recognizes that even, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, even the Gentiles have a conscience and recognize that certain things are right and certain things are wrong on the basis of natural law. But when they're violating that and we, and, and just by our very existence, it's a testimony to their, their, uh, uh, the fact that, that they're violating it, then they react in anger because they suppress truth down in the deepest, deepest basement of their conscience and the deepest, deepest basement of their of their thinking. And what happens is they see you as a Christian, and all of a sudden they hear this knocking on that basement door, and they're trying to shut God down, and so they react in anger and they react in hostility. And as believers living in the midst of that kind of a culture, we think back in the Old Testament to many different leaders who lived in that kind of a pagan environment. And we think of especially of Jeremiah as he's out trying to proclaim the truth in a, uh, a spiritually rebellious, idolatrous nation that is promoting all manner of abomination far beyond the horrors of uh uh, the horrors of homosexuality, they're, they're immolating, they're sacrificing alive their children on the fires of Moloch down in the valley of Hinnom. They're, they're sacrificing their children alive. This is, and they're saying that this is good. This is the, this is, uh, this was their, their religious practice. And so people who were telling them that that was wrong became their enemies. 
So how do we as Christians handle that? Well, one of the doctrines we go to is the sovereignty of God. This is what Hannah went to as she is facing this horrible situation um, where she is the first wife of Elkanah. And Elkanah is, uh, is in that horrible position that was, uh, that was sort of um, uh, uh, codified in that country western song that uh, it's hard to love two women. And so he's caught between in, in this horrible situation, and he's got to uh, take care of both of them, and one is constantly ridiculing and putting down and persecuting the other one. And so when Hannah writes this psalm, it's not an exaltation against. Uh, she's not thumbing her nose at Penina. She is praising God because God is the one who has exalted her. It's not her. It's not something that, that, that she has done. Now, when we look at that doctrine, that's a doctrine of sovereignty. And so Hannah derives comfort from the sovereignty of God. Well, Psalm 135 also is a psalm that extols the sovereignty of God. And I want just to direct your attention to this. Uh, well, just just to get context, I want to read the first four verses. Then we'll look at the next uh, the next three three or four verses. After that, he, he the psalmist starts off saying, "Praise the Lord, praise the name of Yahweh, praise Him, O you servants of Yahweh, you who stand in the house of Yahweh, those who are coming to worship in the temple, in the courts." of the house of our God. So that second line is just reiterating the same idea that's in the first line of verse 2. And then there's another command to praise the Lord. Why? Because Yahweh is good. He is intrinsically good. He has intrinsic righteousness. And so when God speaks, God speaks truth, and God declares what is right and what is wrong. And so we go to his word to determine what is right and what is wrong. And so the the worshipers in Israel are called to praise the Lord. Why? Because he is good. He is the essence of goodness. Sing praises to his name. Why? Because it's pleasant. It's pleasing. It is glorious to call to praise the Lord. For why? Because verse four gives us the ultimate reason for the Lord has chosen uh, Jacob. That's Israel. Jacob for himself. Israel for his special treasure. And so this is a praise for God has chosen Israel. Now, Israel went through a lot of ups and downs. They went through a lot of assaults in history. They went through times of spiritual obedience, but they went through even more times uh, of spiritual apostasy and rebelliousness against God and idolatry and uh, uh, abomination in various different forms of, of idolatry. And so then in verse 5, the psalmist says, For I know that Yahweh is great, and our Lord is above all gods. So you live in a situation where people have all these other gods, and everybody's got gods, and everybody today has gods. And they may say, no, I'm an atheist, but they have into the vacuum of God, uh, uppercase G, they have removed him, but something else becomes their ultimate reality that they indeed worship in some form of, or another. They may put material things in there. They may put sex in there. They may put uh, personal pleasure in there. They may put 
the pursuit of money or winning in competition in there. There's all kinds of things that people can put in there that's the ultimate driving force uh, for their life. But what the psalmist says is that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant God of Israel who delivered them from the Exodus, remember that name Yahweh is given special meaning by God to Moses at the time of the Exodus. So whenever we read that in many of these contexts, the, the, the background to that word, the subtext is, remember, this is the covenant God of Israel who has a special relationship with you. So he says, I know that Yahweh, that is the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is great. And our Lord, there's a ver- word shift there. It's not Yahweh again. If you notice in your Bibles, it moved from uh, small caps with Lord to just regular uh, word with the first letter uppercase, L-O-R-D, our Lord is above all gods. That's sovereignty. Sovereignty means God rules. God rules over his creation. This is why I've entitled this uh, lesson, God Creates, God Rules. Because he made everything, God determines what reality is. God determines the rules, what right and wrong is. And if we don't like God's rules, we can't fight against it. Now, it's difficult in the realm of morality and religion because in the realm of morality and religion, if you disobey, you don't immediately feel the consequences. If you violate the physical laws that God establishes and you put your hand on a hot burner, you immediately are burned. You could say, I, I'm going to create my own reality. This is part of postmodern thinking that most people on the street in America never heard of postmodernism, but they are. They're postmodern. Postmodernism is the ethos of the day, and postmodernism means I can deconstruct reality according to what I want. I can break it down and redefine everything. So if I want to say that I'm really a, a woman or if I may be Caucasian but I'm really black, then I can be whatever I want to be. But you notice they don't go out and say, well, I'm an eagle and I'm going to go up to the 20th floor and I'm going to soar like an eagle because they know that that's not going to work. They're going to fall upon the harsh rocks of reality or the harsh cement of reality. But in the realm of morality, ethics, and religion, they think they can get away with it because there's not an immediate smackdown for disobedience. And so uh, the emphasis here is God rules because God creates. That takes us back to one of those very important doctrines and and again, just referencing this, this latest decision, so many people and many, many pastors went to Matthew chapter 19 this last week where Jesus quotes from, from Genesis chapter 2 that in the beginning God created them male and female. And he said, for this reason, you shall leave mother and father and cleave to one another, combining statements from Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 showing that these two chapters were not contradictory, which modern liberal scholarship tries to argue, but Jesus accepted them both as being absolutely true. And so uh, so there's a plan and a purpose for, for mankind, and God determines what it is because God is the one who creates, and therefore he rules, he sets the rules. And uh, so we read that, that uh, going on into verse 6 now, and in this section, whatever the Lord pleases, 
He does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deep places. Four places are listed there. Heavens and the earth. And, in, and, and what else is there besides the heavens and the earth? That pretty much covers everything. In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. And, and, and uh, when we talk about language and figures of speech, when we say things like night and day, uh, everything up and down, and we use two polar opposite words, we're basically describing two uh, two extremes on uh, two extreme opposites to indicate that we're including everything in between. And so God's uh, so when when we say heavens and the earth, that pretty much includes everything. But the uh, the psalmist wants to make sure that we don't uh, miss out on that. So he adds in the seas and in all deep places. By adding two elements to that, he's making it even more certain that there's no area in all of reality, in all of the universe, uh, where God does not rule. He does as he pleases, and he oversees the reign of of creation. Now, people may ask questions, and they often do, as to whether or not uh, there really is a God and why God allows things to happen. And ultimately, we always have to come back to the fact that if if Everything were perfect, which is what the creatures want to say. Well, if, if God were really good, then this one thing wouldn't have happened. And it's always some sort of issue. It may be a very serious and extreme issue, such as the Holocaust, or it may be something, usually it's something more personal that they didn't get or they lost, a child, a spouse, a friend, something like that in death, something horrible that's happened, and I'm not minimizing it. But they, 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 they say, well, if God were really good, he wouldn't have let this thing happen. But what God has allowed to happen from creation is freedom of will, volition. And so he allows human beings to, to make bad choices that have really bad consequences. And that's part of what freedom is. If God were going to control things so that bad things wouldn't happen, he would have to shut down freedom. He would have to shut down volition. And so you you either have God controlling everything or God gives man a large degree of freedom to make his own decisions and to even make bad decisions and to suffer the consequences. And that's part and, and that's his right because he's the creator. That's how he has designed things. So we read here, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth and the seas and all deep places. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. So there we're talking about three examples of a physical phenomena, the vapors, the lightning, and the wind, and that God controls the weather. Now that that really shocks some uh, some of the uh, climate change people, that God is still in control of the climate. But that is still what's here, which means there are times that, that, that things are not good and things aren't, and things are, are uh, uh, at other times things are better, but God is in control. And then there's a situation in history that's given as an example. He destroyed the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. That's the tenth plague when God brought death to the firstborn in the house of Egypt. God has a right to do that, to ju- bring judgment upon those who violate his will. He sent signs and wonders into the midst of you, O Egypt. Upon Pharaoh and all his servants, he defeated many nations, 
and slew mighty kings. This is in reference to how God protected Israel uh, in the wilderness. And then he gives an, another example in verse 11 of Sihon and a second example of Og. And then he includes all the kings of Canaan. So this reference is the conquest. And he gave their land as a her- inheritance, as a possession, a possession to Israel, his people. And so he goes on, and then he connects it to ultimately because God creates, God rules, God is the one who holds us accountable. This is the same theme we see Hannah bringing up in First Samuel chapter 2. In verse 13 and 14, he says, Your name, O Lord, endures forever, emphasizing the eternality of God and his character. Your fame, O Yahweh, both pass, both lines refer to Yahweh. Your fame, O Yahweh, throughout all generations. Why? For Yahweh will judge his people. He will evaluate uh, his people, Israel, but he will have compassion on his servants, those who serve him, which is a subset of his people, because not all of his people, Israel, served God. But those that served God, those who believed in him and walked with the Lord according to Old Testament standards for salvation, then he will have compassion upon them. And then he shifts gears again in verse 15 to talk about the idols of the nations. And the ancient world, the idol, they had sophisticated idols of the mind just as we do today, but they expressed these in physical uh, idols of gold and silver and wood and stone, um, and he pokes fun at them. God, see, God is not politically correct. He says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouth. Those who make them are like them, which means that he's saying that all those who make idols can't see, can't hear, can't breathe. They're just as deaf and dumb as the idols they make. Uh, and then in contrast, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O house of Israel, house of Aaron, O house of Levi. Bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord out of Zion who dwells in Jerusalem. So here's a great psalm that focuses on the sovereignty of God because he is the creator. So we see this same thing. Let's turn back to our passage in First uh, Samuel chapter 2. We see Hannah doing the same thing. This is the structure of her thinking. Now, where that's helpful for us is whenever we face, whether it's personal catastrophe, personal chaos, or whether it's on a, on a broader scale, then we have to stop and think through the issues of life from a biblical framework. Think them through in terms of God's plan and God's purpose, and that God's plan and purpose will never be, uh, ne- never be violated. They will never, uh, uh, they will never be conquered by the plans of man. And this is the theme, as I pointed out, going as you see on the slide. She emphasizes three times in verses 1 through th- 1b through 3, verses 6 and 7, and in verses 8b to 10a, the unique sovereignty of God. He is holy. He is the unique one. He is, he is uh, kadosh. That means that he is the unique, holy, distinct one, the one of a kind, as Hannah explains it in the middle line of verse 2. There is none beside you. Yahweh, you and you alone are God. So the theme of this, this 
psalm is on the sovereignty of God and how he controls history, that man may uh, propose to do many different things. Man may even be successful in certain areas, but ultimately it is God who is going to uh, override what man does according to God's own thinking and God's own plans. This is the sovereignty of God. And this, and God can be sovereign because of those three uh, attributes that are over here on the right-hand side, the three omni-brothers. He's omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. But that um, that power is not just arbitrary power. Now, if you want to learn about arbitrary power, just look at some of the recent Supreme Court rulings that if you read the rulings, the majority rulings, they're not following traditional legal argumentation, which is based upon the concept of legal precedent. And they are making some things up out of whole cloth in order to achieve their end. Now, that's not unique for the Supreme Court. It happened in the Dred Scott decision back in, I think it was in 1847, and it's happened uh, several other times over the years. The Supreme Court is not infallible, and the Supreme Court is often uh, influenced by the politics uh, of the day. So unlike that, God has an absolute standard internally, intrinsically. He is righteous and he is just so that that which he decrees, that which he carries out, is always in conformity with his righteousness, which is the absolute standard of his character. In Hebrew, this is the word sedekah, which means righteousness. That It refers to that which is absolutely right and absolutely correct. And its application is justice. The righteousness of God is the standard of his character, and the justice of God is the application of his standard. But it is always done consistent with love. Now, love's a big word. And if you pay attention to what's been going on recently, uh, you see a, um, uh, one of the, one of the say- sayings that came out with this celebration over this Supreme Court ruling is the, that love wins. Well, who's defining love? What do you mean by love? Uh, how do you define love? Love without integrity isn't love. Love is not something that is selfish. The great, one of the greatest statements describing love is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. And, and what we're seeing today is just the opposite of that. There's a distortion of love, which, by the way, isn't even mentioned in the Constitution or in the Bill of Rights. It's not a legal concept. Neither are the other concepts that are that were emphasized in the majority decision, which are dig, uh, dig, dignity and equality. These things are not uh, emphasized in the Constitution. So God exercises His omniscient because He knows everything, and His power. He's able to do everything. He exercised that in righteousness, in justice, and love. Not those are not in conflict with one another. So what we saw last time is that in verses 4 and 5, Hannah emphasizes that God intervenes to reverse the plans of fallen humanity. The corrupt plans, whenever we talk about fallen humanity, we're talking about sinful humanity, and sinful humanity is energized by his own arrogance, his own self-absorption. And so at this point, there are uh, several uh, examples that are given in verses 4 through 7, describing uh, God's exercise of his sovereignty. 
Let me just uh, summarize these. I don't have a list. I didn't make a slide of this for you. First of all, we see that in verse 4, God breaks the power of the mighty. These are the mighty in their own eyes, the mighty who have achieved their power on uh, apart from God's uh, God's uh, power apart from uh, humbling themselves to God. They are a power unto themselves. They have achieved power and might on the basis of, of uh, human viewpoint, on the basis of the exertion of their own will and their own strength. And we're told that God breaks their power. They may have power for a season. They may look like they're winning for a season. It looks like the devil's winning for a season, but no. Ultimately, God will break the power of the most arrogant creature he ever created, who is Satan. So God breaks the power of the mighty, and he strengthens those who are weak and who humble themselves under his authority. They're weak in the eyes of the world. God uh, God, God doesn't uh, uh, promote the wise in their own eyes, but he promotes and uses the foolish in the eyes of the world that Paul says in in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. And this is emphasized in other passages. Those who humble themselves under God's authority, he exalts. Second, in uh, the first part of verse 5, Hannah is going to say that those who are uh, full in terms of physical abundance, they have achieved success. They have become well-educated. They have achieved a, a name for themselves within their uh, field of endeavor, and they're doing this in autonomy from God, that they're full in terms of physical abundance. They have plenty of money. They have plenty of resources. They have lots of power, but they will be reduced to the position of being in need. They will be hungry, and the hungry, those who have been poor, those who have uh, not uh, sacrificed their integrity for for success, they will be satisfied. This is the first part of verse verse 5. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. They were full, but now they have to beg for bread, uh, just for the crusts of the bread. But those who, um, but the hungry have ceased to hunger. God has supplied their need. Uh, third, she says, and this would be an example that uh, a personal example for her. She says, those who are barren will be blessed with children. So, and that's the idea they're born. She's born seven. And the idea there is that seven is, it represents fullness. It's used here, not in a literal sense, but it's often used. And we'll see a couple of examples, uh, in scripture where this is talking about, uh, just used as an idealized number, not as a literal number. Uh, those who are barren will be blessed with children, but those who have children will find no pleasure in them. Uh, this would uh, apply to the situation with Penina. She's had children. She's using them. She's lording it over Hannah, but ultimately she's going to find no happiness uh, in them and no pleasure in them, and she will be left bereft in her old age. In ver- uh, fourth thing we see in verse 6, Life and death are in the Lord's hands, not ours. God determines the time, the manner, and the place of our death. And so we just don't need to uh, worry about that. Just go on and live with the best uh, we can, being as responsible as we can with our health, with our safety, with our security. But ultimately, the time of our uh, of our death is in the Lord's hands, and life is in the Lord's hands. 
Uh, that's the first part of uh, verse, verse 6. The Lord kills and makes alive. And then the second part, he brings down to the grave and brings up, emphasizes health and recovery. That's how these terms are used. God is the one who um, brings low and may bring discipline uh, due to illness. But uh, recovery also is in the Lord's hands. He makes poor and he makes wealthy. In the first part of verse 7, he brings low and lifts up. That means he humbles and he exalts in the second half of verse 7. In verse 8, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the dung heap, from the manure pile, from uh, the, the, the sewage pile. Uh, that is outside of the city. So their circumstances are the very, very worst, but God is the one who can exalt them. How? To set them among princes. He's going to take the uh, uh, humble and elevate, the, elevate them to the position of leadership, to set, uh, set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. We can think about Moses, who's exiled from uh, Egypt, and he goes out and he's just a shepherd, which was the lowest job you could have in the socioeconomic values of the ancient world. A shepherd was worse than a ditch digger, worse than a garbage man, worse than the worst uh, occupation you might think of. That was on the, the bottom of the pile, and God raises him from the position of, of, of a shepherd to make him the leader uh, of, of Israel and the one who defeated through God's power, defeated de- defeated Pharaoh. So uh, God humbles and exalts. Uh, in ver- first part of verse 7, verse 8, he exalts the poor and the beggar to positions of leadership and power. Why? The end of verse 8. For, that always indicates an explanation, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. What does this phrase, pillars of the earth, mean? It, it is. I think it's a synonym for the foundations of the earth. God, we're told in, in Job uh, 47, laid the foundations of the earth. When he did, the sons of God uh, sang for joy. The foundations of the earth, that, that is a, a reference to creation. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's. That is an allusion to the doctrine of creation because God created everything from the foundation up. Everything in the earth, it's, it sort of reminds me of that that old joke about the scientist who became so convinced that uh, human science had now become autonomous, that science doesn't need God anymore. So he challenged God to a, to a contest. And he said, God, we don't need you anymore. We've created life in, 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 in the laboratory. We can create life on our own. You're unnecessary. Just go away. And, uh, and, 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 uh, and he challenges God to a contest. And uh, God says, okay, but... Um, I'll, I'll accept that, so I'll let you go first. And so the uh, scientists reached down to grab some uh, dust of the ground, and God said, no, 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 no. You have to make your own dust. God's in charge of everything. He built everything, so he can rule over things. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. Okay, let's go back and kind of break this down. I looked at this some last time. This verse in verse 4, the, bow, the bows of the mighty men are broken down. The bows represent their military might, their technological might, their economic might, their strength, their ability to defeat and dominate other cultures. And so that phrase, the bows of the mighty men, is a phrase that emphasizes their power. 
the fact that they are broken represents their uh, the breakdown there of of power. And so, and then he says, those who are stumbled are girded with strength. We looked at this last time. Uh, passages such as uh, uh, Job thirty four twenty three through twenty seven emphasizes the sovereignty of God. Psalm forty seven two through eight also emphasizes the sovereignty of God, as well as Psalm seventy five six and seven. Just uh, just by way of review, uh, then we get to uh, other passages such as uh, Proverbs sixteen two and Proverbs twenty four twelve. Look at sixteen two for. Things changed since last Tuesday. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. So there's that self-justification. But the Lord weighs the thinking. That's what the concept of spirits is there. It's not talking about demons. It's talking about the attitudes, the thinking. That word ruach often refers to thoughts and ideas and motivations. So it, it comes down to the Lord is the one who evaluates uh, evaluates things, and this is something that that Hannah stated back at the end of verse three. By him, actions are weighed. We're ultimately accountable to him. As I pointed out last time, the NASB probably does a better job of translating verse four. The bows of the mighty are shattered. It's a strong word. They're not just broken, but they're shattered. Uh, and that, that's a permanent destruction. And then the words, those who are stumbled is really better translated the feeble. Those who are unable to, they, they are impotent in their own right. And so they gird on, on strength. And this is, uh, reiterated several times, quoting the Psalms, that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, which we see in 1 Peter 5, 5. And the command that comes out of that, therefore humble yourselves, make yourself weak, under the power of God. In, in our weakness, Paul said, he is exalted because God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. So we humble ourselves under the hand of God. This is reiterated in James 4, 6 through 7. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So this this idea of the bow is one that is often found in many uh, passages uh, in the Old Testament, like Psalm 11.2, Look, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. It's a metaphor for their power and their ability to destroy. Um, Psalm 37:14. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and the needy. It's emphasizing their economic power to destroy those who have have nothing. And what's interesting is this word uh, that is translated uh, "shattered" back here in First uh, Samuel 2:4. The bows of the mighty are shattered. Is the word "hot"? Um, uh, that's uh, C H A T. Let me see if I put that on a on a slide over here. Nope. It's the word hot, and this is a word that is used uh, more than one time. Uh, it's used again in verse ten. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. So if you're if you've got your Bible open here, you can circle the phrase "broken in pieces" in verse ten. And connect that back to the word broken or shattered in verse 4. That's the same word 
uh, in the Hebrew. And so that sort of frames this section of how God rules. What's interesting is is that some of this vocabulary possibly, because uh, there's some textual variants, is used over in uh, uh, the Song of David and the and 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 Second Samuel chapter 22, which seems to indicate a, a again this connection between uh, between these uh, particular psalms. So the emphasis here is on the fact that God is the one who strengthens those who are weak. And we have some examples of that when we come to the New Testament. Uh, and they take them from the Old Testament, Hebrews 11.32. Now, I could probably get by with just reading the first couple of verses, Hebrews uh, 32, 11.32 and 33. But I want to read the whole section because I think everyone needs to be encouraged by what we read in Hebrews 11 right now. The writer of Hebrews says, What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel the prophet. These were all leaders who uh, functioned in the time of, of rank apostasy and idolatry and, and sexual perversion in, in Israel in the Old Testament. And yet they stood firm. They had courage because they trusted in God and God used them because they were not going to be, uh, uh, they, they were not going to yield to their culture. Now, these, as I've pointed out in the past, uh, Gideon, Barak, uh, Samson, and Jephthah all had flaws because we all have flaws. Therefore, nobody who serves the Lord has any right to, to look at himself and think how great they are because we're all flawed, and they were certainly flawed. I've always taken great, great encouragement for the fact that men who are greatly flawed are listed as great heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And then God goes on to say, through the writer of Hebrews, who through faith subdued kingdoms, they were outnumbered, and they were uh, they they were outnumbered, and they were uh, uh, in positions where they had no power, no prestige. But through faith, they subdued kingdoms. They worked righteousness. They obtained uh, promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the violence of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness, they were made strong. There's that key idea. God makes the weak strong. And the weak are those who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. They're not inherently weak. They're weak in the sense that they have, they, they don't have power in the eyes of the world. They are not relying upon their innate abilities, but upon God. Uh, these are the weak and God makes them strong. They became valiant in ba- battle. Turn to flight the armies of the aliens, that is, the enemies of Israel. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. In other words, they didn't compromise their stand for the truth in order to survive. They didn't rationalize and say, well, if I compromise now, I'll live to fight another day. And Thomas Cramner, who's an Archbishop of England, is a fabulous, one of my favorite examples of this, because under the, he, he had finally converted to Protestantism during the time of, of Henry the, Henry the Eighth. And when Henry died and his daughter Mary, who was a Catholic, took over for two years, she's the Queen of England, and she instituted a reign 
of terror against Protestant Christians, and they were burned at the stake at a place called Smithfield in England. They said the blood of the martyrs from the, was the fertilizer was for the saints in, uh, in England. And one of those that was tortured under her reign was Cranmer, and they tortured him and tortured him, and they, and they promised him that if he would recant of his Protestant convictions, then they would let him live. And so he signed a recantation, thinking that he would live. See, that's, that's what happened here. He accepted deliverance. But they couldn't be trusted. And they said, well, it took you too long, so we're going to still execute you. We're going to burn you at the stake. So when they tied him to the stake, he recanted of his confession, and he held out, as the flames grew higher and higher, he held out his right hand, which he had used to sign his recantation, and he cursed his right hand because it had caused him to betray. He'd used it to betray his God, and he let his right arm burn off as he sang hymns to the glory of God. Now, that's a person who's taken the word of God into their soul and has the strength of moral courage that can only come from the word of God. So this is what these men and women are praised for in Hebrews 11.35. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection, indicating rewards and inheritance in the kingdom. Hebrews 11.36, still others had trial of mockings, and scourgings, yes, and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, that's Isaiah. They were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. Paul tells Timothy, those who desire to be godly, to be spiritually mature, will be persecuted. This is what has happened through the ages to those who were really sold out to God. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. This is high praise, high praise from God. So, as we go forward looking at the text, we come to Psalm 18.32. It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. We don't have the resources to withstand, but God does if we're trusting in him. Psalm 18.39, for you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. And so this is the concept, is that God provides the strength. Ultimately, it's not about technology, it's not about education, it's not about our strength, but God's strength. Psalm thirty-three, sixteen: no king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by, by great strength. It is, it is God's power, not our power. This is further developed. I've already quoted from Psalm 18, 2 through uh, 18, 2, 18, 1839, where we have the word strength used which is a, the same word that is used. God is the one who strengthens us. Uh, Isaiah 53, 2, uh, 2 through 5 talks about the, uh, the uh, Messiah, the servant of the Lord, is one who is weak. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. To look at the Messiah is to look at someone who appeared in the eyes of the world to be weak, 
born to a carpenter in a small innocuous village in Galilee and and I mean born in Bethlehem but reared in a small innocuous village in Galilee and Nazareth uh, as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. There was nothing about him that indicated he was who he was. His his power was internal, not external. He w- you wouldn't have found him on the picture of some modeling magazine, or he wouldn't be the picture of someone who was the the, the perfection of human beauty. Uh, the text says he had no form or comeliness. There's nothing physical about him that would have caused him to stand out in a crowd. It goes on to say, when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. In terms of the eyes of the world, there was nothing of value there. But if you look past the outside, the perfect righteousness and the virtue of the Lord Jesus Christ was perfect. So he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. That is, we rejected him. This is talking about Israel. Rejected him. He was despised. We did not esteem him. We didn't value him. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But verse 5 goes on to say, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. That's the role of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah. He takes our punishment upon him, and he is the one who bears our sins on the cross that we might be justified. So we see that God is the one who gives strength to those who are weak. He's the one who is able to reverse life situations so that failure is turned into success and loss into gain. God turns losers into winners and winners into losers according to his plan and those who submit to his authority. This is what is spelled out in the next verse, in verse 5, and we're going to come back and look at 5, 6, and 7 next time. Uh, God is the one who's in control, so don't let circumstances ever get you down. They should never get us down, no matter what they are, because God's the one who's in control, and we have to trust him that his knowledge, most of the time, more than 90% of the time, let me put it this way, just to get your attention, more than 90% of the time, God knows more than you do. 100% is more than 90%. Just want to make sure you understand that I'm not limiting the knowledge of God. More than 90% of the time, God knows more than you do. So when we look at our circumstances and we think that somehow it's out of control, it's not out of God's control. He declares the end from the beginning. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of your greatness, your goodness, and because you are the creator God, you rule over the affairs of men. You give us freedom. Often we use that freedom to abuse you. We use that freedom to go our own way, and we use that freedom for self-destruction. But you've given us that freedom. And, Father, we pray that you might give us wisdom to use the freedom that you've given us wisely and humbly submit ourselves under your authority and to your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.